And they said, well, we can't possibly sign that. And I said, then I can't possibly go forward with this. And I certainly will not show you any of our ideas. So we're out. You may leave now. You know, it takes a lot of courage to do that. I've had a situation where the new guy came in, changed everything. We didn't do the huge show that year. That person, because the management had seen the quality of what we did, fired him. It cost them their career because they brought in somebody new because they just had to put their thumbprint on it. How many times have you heard about a project where I got, I've got to put my mark on it? That's right. You, you better make sure your mark is not a stain. <laughs> That's exactly the danger of, uh, of bureaucracies, that, that uh, everybody gets their little buy-off in. And at the end, what's the product that you're looking at? And you've sometimes lost focus of the actual audience or the client or the customer. The so. other thing is to become an integral part of the team. Uh, I'm sure it happens in the, in the law uh, business as well as in ours. And that is to be a trusted member that you really have their best interests at heart. It's not just about you. And if you have a moment, I have one quick story that uh, is really illustrates that. Uh, I was in Dallas for a meeting with uh, Mr. Gunn and I finished that meeting. I was walking down the hallway and the vice president of advertising said, Hey Fred, can you sit in on this meeting? And I said, sure. And he, and you have to understand that advertising never hired us. They had an agency who did advertising and we did these live events and big videos and eventually the IMAX films for their museum and such. But these big videos were internal videos in anywhere from 400,000 to a million dollars for eight to 10 minutes worth of video. So you could do some really good stuff and we did some really big stuff and go around the world and shoot in 35 millimeter. And they used some of our footage occasionally in the national commercials, but we were not part of that agency at all. And they'd hire their own directors and their own everything. So anyway, it was the agency was there because this was advertising got called because they are starting up new service to Europe. And uh, at that time, they had big travel agent meetings. This was before all the computerized everything. And they had to have this big meeting in Europe and they needed a video uh, for that meeting. And the agency came up with a concept that was very similar to the kind of videos we had, except it, it wasn't. It was a big commercial uh, with all of the flights, name, you know, flight schedules and the pricing and how cool this is and that and all that. Typical commercial kind of thing, more of a hard sell. And uh, I was, sat through this whole thing and, and Tom, uh, who looked, he was the VP, looked at him and said, well, how much will this cost me? And they said about $450,000. And uh, they weren't really doing any original shooting and not really original music so much. And I think they were doing a little bit, but they were just bringing it together and charging for their creative services, which agencies do. And they were gonna farm some of it out and, and do some of it internally. And they were all excited because they got, there was, there was 12 people in the room, as I recall, nine to 12, something like that. A lot of people. And I was sitting there by myself. And uh, got all done, and he turned to me and says, well, Fred, what would you charge me for that video for this? I said, well, I could probably do it for about 300 to three, maybe 350 at the most, but 300 probably, somewhere in that range. And uh, 
but we do original footage and I do an all new original music track for it, um, really to, to set up. And this is a branding opportunity because you have this audience who thinks that American Airlines is, a, is an airline from America. They don't even know who American is because there was no presence of American in Europe at that time. So I said, so you're going to have to really have something that sets up what the brand is. And you also, it's a live event, guys. It's not a TV spot. It's not a commercial. It's not broadcast. It's a live event. So you need to put something on the screen that really gets them in, and says, wow, I had no idea. Cool airline. They go a lot of places. We, and now they're coming here. Great service, so on, so on. But you show it and use the music and use a little bit of narration, a lot of great pictures to tell it. And you certainly don't want to put all of the, the, all the flight schedules and the prices in because this is three months before the event. By the time you get there, it all changed. And besides, it's a live event. Somebody's got to stand up and talk. That's what they talk about. And they can change that the day before they, they give their speech. So I would do it that way. But on the other hand, Tom, is, is this even in your budget? He says, oh, this is killing my budget for the quarter. <laughs> I mean, that, that money now, in today's money, would be double what we were talking about, those numbers. Of course. And, uh, and he says, no, no, I, it's, it's blowing my budget totally. So I said, how about if I could solve your problem for $45? And he looked around and said, what? And I said, remember that uh, the video we did a year ago called Silver Machine? He says, oh, yeah, that was really cool. We, we're still using it. He said, well, why don't you just use that? to open the show. It's a branding piece. It's all about America and it shows the, all the other routes and everything you fly by destinations, not talks about routes. It's, it's the magic of flying and taking people places and it gets a big emotional response and it, it's a branding piece. And he says, oh, that'd be perfect. He says, $45, what's that for? I said, that's for my guys to take it off the shelf. It's already in PAL, which is the European format. And the $45 is for the FedEx to have it here on your desk tomorrow. Wow. And he says, done. And now the people from the agency were pissed, royally pissed off. So they're going out and they're looking at me with daggers. I mean, and, and I said to Tom, I said, well, I, I guess I'm a pretty crappy salesman because I just lost a $300,000 deal. He says, you didn't get the sale, but you own the client. Now. That's incredibly powerful. <laughs> and then I walked on the way home. I said, now, did I do it? Was this right or not? But I already had plenty of business from them. I didn't have to have that business. And so the, the side of me that says honesty, integrity was, the, was what really made me think that. And, and thinking about what they needed to do. The backside of that story was the uh, president of the agency and the vice president in charge of the American account called me later and apologized for what his guys had done. He said, they're trying to take the kind of things that you do so well and, and tried to do it internally here and take it to the agency. We've instructed these people that they are to never, when they get a request like this, to do anything but to advise the client to call you directly. And then about a year later, they called me and when they had a major uh, piece to do for JCPenney in a pitch, they wanted us to do the creative 
uh, piece that's a lifestyle piece, the same kind of piece that we do so well as their presentation, part of their presentation to Penny for a $100 million a year contract. And they ended up getting it. And the sidebar to it is they gave me uh, $100,000 to do this thing. And I did an original score and, and everything. And, uh, and they, they, we, we got it, you know, we're getting it done. And they called me and I was about halfway into it. And they said, we've got to cut the budget by 15 grand. Just got to do it. We're over budget on the rest of our, our pitch and everything else. And I said, okay, but you guys have never called me to do anything before. So I'm going to do this the whole way. I'd have made about 15 grand on it. I'll give up my profit because I just want to do this and make it right for you guys and also demonstrate what we can do. We did. They showed it to three guys as the finale to their presentation, which was all about, uh, they did a ton of research on, on the consumers and they knew the, the JCPenney consumer better than the JCPenney people did. They really did it right. And then ours was the only piece of actual creative pitch. They weren't pitching a commercial or a, or a campaign. They were pitching, we know how to market and position your company for these, your customers better than you do. And they did. So anyway, the three guys in there stood up and clapped at the end of it with tears in their eyes. And about, uh, and afterwards, because I, I told them if you guys end up under budget, if you can give me the 15 grand, that'd be nice. But you don't have to. And they called me and said, no, we were over budget and we don't have the money. I said, the deal's a deal. It's fine. I'm fine. I'm happy. The thing worked and we'll see if you get the account. Well, a couple of months later, it was announced that they got the account. I didn't think anything about it. I was like, good for them. I'm glad. Um, and lo and behold, about two weeks after that, a check for $15,000 came from the agency. Now, if you know the agency business, that's unheard of. It is unheard of. <laughs> totally unheard of. And it told me they have integrity. And then it was their referral to H. Ross Perot to lead to two giant productions that I ended doing, up doing for, for Ross, uh, including the uh, Welcome Home event for 50,000 veterans at the uh, celebrating the end of the Vietnam War um, in Branson, Missouri. Huge, huge event that was probably the most powerful emotionally that I've ever done uh, tribute to Vietnam vets. And it was a week-long event. And uh, we did all those things for Ross. But it was all based on the chairman of that agency introducing me to Ross and says, he's the guy that ought to do this for you when they came to the agency. Wow. Referrals, deliver, have integrity, build trust, build relationships, and get the referral and then come through. Don't screw up. And it's those, I mean, it, this is an incredible lesson because with everything that you've done, um, and it's a lot. <laughs> I'm not even talking about the being a professional musician and a pilot, but it's a lot. With all that, you're really talking about some core foundational principles about being a decent person, um, putting out quality work, which gives you the referral. You know, these are things that are built in your character, one might say, at a young age. And well, it's that's, my, that's mom and dad. To your, to your work. I'm sorry. But that's mom and dad. Exactly. And, and you brought that into your work and that's what's made you successful. So it's not about having the best um, equipment in the world. It's about 
And, and the other thing that's, that's amazing to me is, is um, that where you didn't have a specific expertise, either you learned it or you brought an expert in. So your, your thinking is a lot like, like a very good general, you know, not the micromanagerial general, but the one who realizes, because, you know, it takes a certain amount of, um, I'm going to say maturity um, as a business person to realize that, you know, I may not do everything well. And I need to get the experts in here to bring that piece to it so that what I do really well, I can accentuate. You feel like it, it seems like you did a great deal of that in your career. Yeah, when I started too, I, I worked part-time as a stagehand. Uh, I worked uh, a lot. I tried to work in all the jobs at one point or another. I can run a camera. I can edit. I'm a decent editor, but I'm a real good content editor in flow and can come back and look at it and say, no, change that from a 30 frame dissolve to a 45 frame dissolve and move it six frames this way and see what happens. And all of a sudden it really works. And the you know, editors go, wow, that, or the, whoever's putting it together or what I'm working with uh, one of my directors on a, on a separate piece. Uh, and because you look at it with fresh eyes, you, I get way into an edit on something. I'll bring in somebody else to, to look at it said, so, you know, I'm, I'm so close to it now, I, I can't even tell for sure. Uh, you can get too close, so then you have to have fresh eyes look at it, or you have to go away and come back and, and look at it. But the editors that I hire, uh, I had some where you had to sit with them and, and really take them through it, what you, you know, choose the scenes and, and talk them through it, and they're, they're manipulating the machine. When you're manipulating the machine and thinking about what goes in there, in the initial stages, it's easier because you you know where things want to go. And in the later stages where you're doing some fine refinements and such and creating graphics and everything else, if they're just doing that mechanics, they can do it so much faster than, than some, a lot of us can. And you're thinking now about big picture, you're not into the weeds of the mechanics of getting it done. And then if you got a really good editor, which I did in a kid named Kent, Tim Flora, who's still doing great. Um, he was the first one that really understood flow and how to cut to music and how that flow with music uh, and the rhythm of the picture has to all blend together because that's part of what makes you make it feel like a major Hollywood production because they do that brilliantly. And if you get that going and you find somebody who can do that, that takes me out of the edit room for hours on end to where I'm working with clients, I'm answering phone calls, I'm meetings, and I'm writing, and I'm directing and producing, bringing more work into the edit suite because I got somebody I can trust and I don't have to sit there for hours. So it's time management. That's another thing. I would really advocate taking a time management class and you will probably, if you're pretty good, not learn a thing, but you'll be reminded about all the stuff that you're supposed to do that you're not doing. I used, I, I took one, I think I took three along the way, you know, <laughs> five, 10 years apart. And every time I went in and said, I know, I know I'm supposed to be doing that. I think that's like a diet thing. You know, you, you know what you're supposed to do, but you're not doing it because it's not your habit. So yes. you get well said. <laughs> you know the right thing to do, but uh, but it's you know it's it's hard to keep on. Um, but I like milkshakes. <laughs> <laughs>
that's really good. I mean, that's really good. Um, tell me about, um, I think you, you have a story about Walmart and I think it goes back to, you know, building a, uh, a trust um, because when, you know, understanding that both sides of a business deal uh, want to get the best deal, but the, but, you know, not advocating for just everything for yourself can sometimes be a good thing. You know, thinking about the other guy, again, back to some of the values you get from your, from mom and dad. I was, uh, I had made a pitch for a feature film mm -hmm. and I was pitching major corporations to uh, fund as sponsors of a feature film, which they never do. Uh, but the pitch was pretty compelling and I was successful with Coca-Cola, McDonald's, MasterCard, American Airlines, and Walmart. And the Walmart, uh, well, the, the contract that I had to come up with all these sponsors had to be pretty much the identical contract. Uh, and Coca-Cola was actually the first one. But uh, I, I called around to some lawyer friends I knew, and I said, I need somebody who really knows kind of the film business for all the copyright and, and the ins and outs of that. But we're going to deal with these giant companies. And well, I already have negotiated all the talking, all the points, all the deal points. But I need somebody to write a contract that really, really protects them as much as it does me. So I went to a firm in Los Angeles, uh, Wolf Ripken Shapiro, and met with Michael Wolf. And he was recommended by some other people. And when I um, met with him, I said, here's what I want you to do. And the first thing he says is, I don't think I can do that because we represent you. We're trying to get you the great deal. And I said, no, I want a deal that I can sit on the other side of the table and be happy with. I want you to not have to uh, a contract that we have to negotiate. I've already negotiated these points. These are the points, put it in the deal. They've already said they don't do this. So now it's just, this is the formality, but it's gotta be the legalese in there because there's a lot of copyright kinds of things because we're gonna use some of their logos and some of their products and such within the film, but I can't give them any creative control. And, but I gotta do it in such a way as they, they get it and they'll have a little bit of creative control, so on and so forth. But, and I already told them, I'll give you the opportunity. You can reject something you don't like. Tell me you don't like it, but I have to fix it my way. You can't tell me what to do. Right. I can, you cannot wander into that territory, even on script. And, the, and it only applies to the scene where your logo appears on a product or something. And they said, fine. So anyway, so I had this long discussion with Michael about how to do that. And he finally says, well, it's totally unorthodox. Never had to do that before, but I will. And he wrote up a contract and we went through the, all the paces in Walmart. Oh my God, they, they are a, a bigger depth dive on you than the CIA might do. But uh, it came the time to do the signature. And I got a call from the the top lawyer at Walmart, the guy, the vice president legal in charge of all the Walmart contracts and everything. And I'm going, oh my God, what's wrong? And I picked up the phone and said, yes, sir, what's wrong? And he says, what do you mean what's wrong? I said, you're the, you're the top guy. I don't get a call like this on a, <laughs> on a, I know it's seven figures, but for you guys, that's not that big. And he says, no, no, I, I look at all of these and uh, I just wanted to call you to congratulate you. We just signed your contract. 
and it's the best contract that I've ever seen written that we had no changes on. You protected us every bit as well as you protected yourself. This is an ideal contract. And I've never had a contract come through my desk or my law department that they didn't change something. And I called, I actually wrote a really glowing letter to my lawyer thanking him and telling him about this call because it is exactly what you want. It's what you want to build any long-term relationship. You have to have a contract written that is really good for everybody. And that's what we did. And it's, I, for me, it's such an important, valuable lesson for young lawyers because we're taught as advocates. And um, I try to tell people that, you know, you have to look at the business concerns of your client. In this case, building a solid relationship with, with Walmart was incredibly important for you. So, you know, getting a little bit more in your indemnification clause or et cetera, maybe that's not what the client wants. In this case, you were well served. And it sounds like you had a lot of business insight. I also want to say that you, you have to also be the, you're the boss when it comes to your lawyer, you know, just remember that folks, <laughs> you make the calls, they're there to serve you. And that's, that's a really, really great example of it. But uh, yes, maybe, maybe to this date, Walmart's not had a contract that they haven't changed since yours. <laughs> Yeah, well, and the one with, it was the same contract as McDonald's and the day that they were to sign it, I got a call from the vice president and said, your contract's not getting signed and I just got fired and so did all the other vice presidents because the new president came in and cleaned house. Oh my goodness. Uh, and I had a project. Uh, story. With, uh, with, I had a project with Discovery. They greenlit the project. They said, we want you in production on this new series in 90 days. We love the pilot you did. I put a quarter million dollars of my own money in the pilot. And uh, they they just loved it. And we'll get back to you uh, first of the week with uh, the contract and all that. No call, no nothing, waited 48 hours. You know, maybe something happened there. And sure enough, something happened. The VP who was in charge was no longer with the company. I never found out if she was fired or she quit or whatever happened. The replacement wouldn't even talk to me. Had his assistant tell me all of her, uh, all of her projects have been canceled. End of story. Period. And that's the reality of the equation. A lot of times we're dealing with, with uh, modern corporate struggles. And yes. And, and, and it's really for the small vendor, yes. which is what we always were, a small vendor. Exactly. It's, it can, it's, in some cases, it can be totally destructive. And th those are the hard things to deal with. And it's one of the reasons I found that very frequently in the broadcast business. And I have tended to stay out of it, especially when I was uh, putting my own production company and money at risk. And now, guess what I'm doing? That thing over my shoulder right there, that's the set design for the new show I'm, I'm developing for somebody else. I'm hired as, but I'm an executive producer. So my, my brand and my reputation are on the line. And I, I believe that we can make this successful, but I'm gonna have somebody else do the liaison with the networks. Could you discuss um, the title of the show and, and when it's going to play? Or uh, it, It's called The Gloria Gold Show, and that's all I can really talk about right now. And it's uh, looking to uh, probably premiere next spring. Next spring. Could be or, summer, or a summer replacement show. Because we're, we're new. Uh, we're not a big uh, known production entity. 
And uh, we're, we're spending a lot of money right now on getting a, a real good sample of what the show is going to be without doing the full setup, which would take it, 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 the size of the set and everything else with it, it would cost millions. So uh, we're not going to do a full pilot for it uh, until we're, we're funded. But uh, this is how you build the pitch. And I do know how to pitch. Very good lesson, right? <laughs> yeah. And OPM, other people's money, people who can afford it and uh, understand the risk. These, the, all these th kind of things in entertainment are very high risk. Uh, even the shows that we did for, for corporate work are high risk for the people involved. Like I told you about before, people, you, you hire the wrong company and screw it up. It, it's not only the company that gets fired, but it's also sometimes the executive who hired them. Right. We've seen that happen more than a few times. So it's high risk, also very high payoff, right? I would probably characterize it as an asymmetrical type of a return. Yeah, risk-reward relationship. That risk-reward relationship is, is pretty good. On, on our side of the business, the numbers for what we were doing for corporate kinds of producers were, were good and high. But relative to uh, some of the TV commercials budgets, uh, I would get 25 to 30% of what they would spend on a really high-end 30-second commercial to do a 10-minute piece. And I was thrilled with it because I didn't have the kind of overhead and cost levels built in that they did. Um, that, that's also a, a big piece of it. When I did my feature film, I, I screened it and some people from Oprah's company came to see it at a screening room in LA. And they said, how much did you bring it in for? And I said, well, you just saw it. What would you say it should be? And they had numbers in the, well, I'll, I'll put it into today's numbers, adjusted for inflation. They were saying you couldn't have done this for less than 50 million. Couldn't have done it. Um, if it were a studio picture, it'd have been 60 to 65 million. And I said, I brought it in for 20 million. And no. they said, you're a liar. <laughs> Didn't even believe you, right? And I, and I gave them a number that was inflated by 15%. Wow. And they said, it couldn't be done. I said, well, I did it. You just saw it. He says, well, then you're a liar. I'm, I'm not lying to you. Uh, and um, it's very high quality. And, in some of it. And, and the, the numbers were smaller than that, but, you know, at the time. But, I, but when it got all done, they, they said, we, we spend almost as much on a, high, on a big pilot as you did for this whole thing. And I said, well, you should hire me to do your pilots. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, I really would like to work with you guys. And I'd call them, they wouldn't take, return my calls, and never heard from them again. That's Hollywood. You're not part of our little tribe. You're not part of our group. We don't know you, but it doesn't matter uh, unless, oh, you, you might be a threat to us. It's basically, rather than looking at, wow, somebody really cool so could do this. That's what I'd look at. There's somebody I meet who does something really well. Man, that's an asset, not a, not a threat. 
It's, it's amazing given that dynamic that you've been so tremendously successful because um, we find that in all different kinds of industries, there are these, these close-knit groups and everyone's kind of feeding each other. And these kinds of relationships, a lot of them aren't really founded on what's best for the customer, but what's best for all the players who are involved and you want to get into that little group, et cetera. Um, and it doesn't, really, it doesn't really, if you just look at it broadly, give the best results, whether it's for the audience, for the clients, for society, et cetera. And it's just amazing that as a small business, you've been able to get those enormous contracts and work with major corporations or none bigger. Um, and sometimes you kept that relationship for many, many years. Like, uh, would you like to talk about your relationship with NCR? I understand. That was yeah, there. NCR was uh, 37 years and um, How's that even possible? <laughs> well, that's what we thought too. But uh, a, a couple things we did is I would fly to them uh, often and meet face to face. And uh, even you know, prior to Zoom and, and and all that, we we started way early in the game. But uh, matter of fact, we started so early that I bought and put the first fax machine in the marketing department of American Airlines and at NCR as a way to work from San Diego and be right there for them and between phone facts, but I would get on airplanes and meet with them. And even after we could do Zoom and Skype and everything else, I, I fly to whenever necessary, especially early on, you fly to it, the place you, you meet them, uh, have a drink after the meeting with them, you may have dinner, uh, you establish a relationship and you have to build the trust. You have to build the trust and then whatever you say, you better write it down and you better damn well deliver or you're gone because the competition will eat you alive. And in some cases, when we, we always have to come back and pitch every year. It was a foregone conclusion that we were going to get it uh, because we had proved ourselves and, and we got ratings. I mean, they had an extensive rating system from their audience. And everything that we did was part of that rating it was system. Deserved, so event. It was a multi-year yeah. contract. Yeah. And it, we never had a multi-year contract. Every year was year by year by year. Yeah. And a couple my, of times, they, and they took pitches from other people. And one time they said, well, the pitch from this New York company was way better than yours. I said, really? He said, yeah. But then we went to one of their shows and it was terrible. They were a professional pitch group. They also spent ah. almost $45,000 on their pitch. And they brought in and they rented a ballroom in the hotel. And they brought in the NCR guys. And they, they had a dance troupe. And they had all this big, they put on a big show for them. So it's dazzling. But you could deliver what it was. And, and it also... They saw and got to know my crew. I kept the same people for years and years and years. Most of my employees stayed with me, key employees stayed with me for 10 to 25, 30 years. 25 years, I, close to 30 was the longest. That's incredible. But most of them spent many, many years with us. And my freelance people, I had the same freelance people come back year after year, the same teleprompter people, the same, uh, a lot of the same camera people. They got to know not only my client, but they got to know the executives, they got to know the people, it, they got to understand the audience. And my whole team was consistent. And they said, well, all these other guys, 
It's a new team every year, including the creative people, because you're talking to a sales team and they will say anything to get the job and the commission. And if you look at the numbers, as soon as you have a commissioned salesperson involved in this kind of event, if they're getting 10%, that was normally my profit, 10 to 15%. So that's gone. And you take a look at the cost of the pitch, I call it cost of sales, the cost of your time and energy to follow up with a client. You don't want a one-time deal because it's really expensive. And you're, when you're doing that, you are selling, you are not producing. You're not generating any income. It's all overhead and outgo. So you've got to cover that with all the jobs you do have. And just understanding that for a lot of people in the production business, they don't get it. They, they never thought about it that way. I mean, that's really well said, Fred. I, I um, think of the expression that you sell the, it's the salesperson's expression, you sell the sizzle, not the steak. But if you think about it, is it really true? Because if you give the person a bad steak, they're never going to get another steak from you again, right? So you have to be able to give the sizzle, but also deliver on a great steak. So you have that customer coming back over and over again for a great meal. And it's, and I think that you're, I think what your story is, is, is very, is very powerful in that respect that, you know, you have to deliver results and you don't want to put all your money into the pitch. And maybe it's the, the, the pitch can be a huge cost and maybe the pitch is really not the same thing as the product you end up with, you know, it, it gets you in, but you know, what, you know, what, what exactly does it, does it give you? For, for, two, two really important points. One is uh, as a cr small creative business, you can't be all things to all people. Uh, the big legal firm has a lot of clout, but it's the individual lawyer that has to, the lead lawyer on each case with each client. That's what's critical. So as a creative person, I can only be so many places at once. An American told me once, uh, the, my gun told me directly, he said, Fred, I know that you're growing and everything else, and we wanted you to do this stuff, but as long as you are involved directly, you can use your people to help you, but you have to stay involved directly, and you'll probably have this account as long as you want it. But the minute you're not involved, and you're not the guy making the stuff happen and the creative behind it, we're gone. Yes. Fair warning, you cannot grow beyond a certain size. And once we got to a certain point, we had 30 full-time people at one point. I hated it. It was no longer fun. I was managing. I wasn't creating. I didn't get into this. I, if I wanted to do that, I'd join uh, a, a big corporation. I never right. wanted to be part of that. I wanted to do my own thing. And uh, so that's something to remember too. How big can you get? You don't want every customer. So I just want to tell you a quick thing about qualifying the customer. Um, more than a few times, we, we pitched the wrong person. They were not the decision makers. They, we thought they were and that they weren't. If you can't pitch the decision maker, your chances of actually getting it done are very low because now you're counting on somebody else to go in and tell them their impression of what you said. Uh, and that doesn't work. And other times you, uh, are brought in on something uh, to pitch, but the problem is they already decided who they're going to 
use. They're just fishing for free ideas. And we had a company, uh, a beer company come in and they uh, uh, were four of them. And we were all excited. They said, this is a million dollar plus job. And uh, that would be about $2 million today. And they, they told us flat out that, uh, you know, we want, we, we heard about you guys and we want to come in. And then we never found out where they got the referral from, but they did come in. They flew in San Diego and they uh, sat around and we were all excited. We had already done research on their meetings and uh, knew what they were, what the essence of the meeting was and such. There's enough online to figure that out. And then we had a, a, a initial boards and, and ideas ready to go. And we sat down with them and I asked a couple of key questions. I always work off a checklist. And my part of my checklist was, who all is making a pitch for this? And he says, well, there's five companies. Five. Okay. Well, what are your chances of getting this instantly in my head? Well, that would be 20%. Yes. So I said, is one of those companies uh, the incumbent company who's been producing your shows? And they said, no. Why is that company, did they screw up the show last year? Oh, not really, no. Uh, why are they not bidding? They opted to not bid. Okay. Ah, the story. Um, okay, now first red, red flag. There's a red flag <laughs> waving there. Be careful what, what's coming next. But there's five companies. Who are the companies? Well, we don't want to tell you that. Well, I, then it, the meeting's over. If you can't tell me who I'm competing against, for God's sakes, I think I know who most of these companies are in the country, the big ones anyway. And they named them off and they were all the big guys. And so I know that all of those guys have professional sales teams and that's what they do. They don't, they don't, uh, some of them do keep clients long-term, but a lot of them don't, but it doesn't matter. Uh, I, I was said, okay. And, um, uh, we have a whole bunch of work already here that we're pretty excited about, but five companies, how come you don't knock it down to three or something? It says, no, we want to look at five. So anyway, we're in this room and I'm trying to figure out who the decision maker is. And I'm coming to the conclusion that maybe none of these people are the decision maker. Uh, because I asked some real key questions. How many people are uh, bidding this five? That makes we only get a 20% chance. The original uh, uh, producer is not bidding and he didn't do anything wrong that I could tell. So, uh, and they want us to come to Colorado to pitch them on our dime against five other companies. And I, and so I finally said, look, you're not going to pay for anything. You want us to do all this. You want to see all of our work and take these all, have all these ideas from five of the best companies in the country. Um, will you sign an agreement that if our ideas are, or if, if not one of these, let me pick that up again. Sorry, I misspoke. It's okay. Will you sign an agreement that says that if you do not pick one of these five, you will pay us, I don't care what you do with the other five, but you will pay us $75,000 for, because I, I believe what you're trying to do is get a bunch of ideas that are going to be given to the other company and they already have the job because your bosses have a 
relationship with this producer and either the uh, purchasing department or somebody said go out and get a bunch of bids or go and then you're going to share the ideas and we're going to get screwed out of all the work we do so if you won't if you will sign that then i will go ahead and pitch and we already have a whole lot of really cool stuff we wanted to show you while you're here today so we can draw this agreement up you can sign it and then we'll be fine well we can't do that would you accuse us of actually doing that i said oh yes because i think that's exactly what's happening here and you might guys may be genuine about what you're doing but somebody's not and they said well we can't possibly sign that and i said then i can't possibly go forward with this and I certainly will not show you any of our ideas. So we're out. You may leave now. You, you know, know it takes a lot of courage to do that, especially for oh. a, a boutique um, firm such as your own. Yeah, some of my, some of my uh, people were saying, oh, you were rude and Wait, that was a big job. We could have done that and all this stuff. We could beat them out. And uh, I said, yeah, let's just wait and see. And it was months later, I heard from through the grapevine, through some freelancers, that none of the five got it and that the incumbent did the show again. And it's, there, it's in a small town in Colorado, this company. This is many, many years ago. The people may not even be there anymore. So, uh, but this actually happened and the word I got uh, was that in fact, the same producer did continue to produce and produce for years later. So interesting. Was it was it driven by the uh, the company itself, or was it driven by the uh, purchasing department, or how did how did that actually happen? I'll never know. I don't care. But you have to be very careful about who you do business with, because good business is a two way street, not a one way street. Yes, that's really well said, Fred. And 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 I'll tell you, I think one thing I myself have experienced as a business owner and I, many others have articulated to me is that you have to realize what clients to not work with just as much as the clients to work with. You can't work with the time wasters and people who are looking to, for free work, et cetera. And there has to be a certain amount of, and I don't want to put too much of a negative spin on it, but it really is important because you, because for example, you may have a lot of people who are just looking to take up a lot of your time and get free ideas and things like that, which is great. I mean, you're happy to share just like you're being incredibly um, kind and sharing here to our audience. Um, and you want to be able to tell everybody, but at the same time, you know, it shouldn't be under the guise of, Hey, you know, we're going to give you some business. Let's just get mm -hmm. as much free stuff or, you know, in our case, free legal work, et cetera, as possible. There has to, there has to be that kind of a, like a two-way street, just like you said. Absolutely. One other quick story though, that was very interesting was we got a call on, I think it was a, you know, like a Wednesday or a Thursday uh, from the people who were building the Air Force Memorial. And uh, they, that was a, a private, uh, enterprise. It was not government, but a retired general was in charge of building this whole thing. It was all done on contributions, and it's a beautiful, huge place, and they were going to do the de dedication, and a big, huge flyover, just about everything the Air Force could fly, and they were actually closing down Reagan Airport uh, during the time of the flyover. They had the president, uh, most of the Joint Chiefs, and senators and the heads of every aerospace company in the world and the heads of most of the air forces of the non-communist countries in the world, all in attendance. 
and about 50,000 people watching on jumbotrons around the Pentagon. Big deal. And they needed a video to open it. And I got called because uh, Ross Perot Jr. was uh, on the committee. And uh, apparently my name got mentioned and said, well, you ought to include him in the bid. And so Wait, I got let, me, let me just stop you for a second there. Ross Perot Jr., how did, did you know him or no. were you? Okay. It's just because you did work for, for Ross Perot? For, for senior. Yeah. yeah so senior. senior mentioned a junior and I, I guess I, <laughs> I got mentioned. Because uh, I had done quite a bit of work for him. Anyway, so they, General Grillo called me and, and uh, said, would you like to come in and make a bid? We already have, we're down to, to two bidders. And they're, they're two great big, uh, one's a PR firm and one's a big production company in D.C. Uh, it's all inside the Beltway stuff, so I figured I don't have a chance. But what the hell, I, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And then they said, well, you have to be here and, and make your pitch on a Wednesday of next week. So this is, you know, I had less than a week to prepare. And uh, he gave me the, the parameters. This is told me all about how big the thing was going to be and what they were doing. This is the video that opens the whole deal. And this needs to tell the story of the U.S. Air Force from World War I to the present in seven minutes or less and make it emotional. Is that all? <laughs> Uh, so I said, okay, I'll be there. And we did the details and I we booked a flight and I showed up and I was waiting in the uh, outside hall of this uh, PR firm that was not the PR firm that was doing the pitching, but the uh, firm that was actually coordinating the physical event. And they, they did a real good job. So I had the one PR guy and then in the room when I finally got in were about 12 other people, some people from active Air Force and uh, the people on the staff of the uh, uh, organization that's building the thing and putting on the event. And of course the PR firm that is physically putting the event together. So when I'm waiting though, the people before me came out and there was a team of about 12 dressed to the nines in their suits and the whole thing coming out and they had just made the pitch. Uh, I didn't see the second group, but those people were leaving and they were looking around because they knew that the other pitch was there. And here's little old me sitting by myself. So they must have felt pretty good walking out and because they were all smiles and such. So I, I walked in and it was, uh, it was a bit of an inquisition uh, feeling. There was a bunch of people really looking at you pretty sternly and where, where's your team kind of deal. But I ran a video, short video that just showed some of the, uh, especially the flying things. And we had some pretty spectacular footage from we had done with uh, Learjet and with uh, American Airlines and such. And it was all set to music. And it just, uh, here's, here's big stuff that we do. And it was pretty spectacular, about a minute worth of stuff. So that was my credentials and the fact that I was brought in. And then I, I went, went through just a little background on what we do and how we do it. And then I said, in this case, I want to just talk to you and, and I'm going to do something I never do before, uh, never have done before. And that is to tell you what not to do in this video, no matter who you hire, us, them, anybody. Uh, one, don't do any interviews. Don't do a Discovery Channel type of documentary because you've got seven minutes. And if you say one word of interview, you, you're, you're dead already because 
that time will go away so fast and there's nothing meaningful that you can put in a talking head interview. Uh, and whoever you interview, that means you didn't interview 500 others who ought to, should have been interviewed. So you've got a political problem there. Same thing with graphics. You can't put a graphic in this incident, that incident in, you know, these milestones of time. You don't want to do that because you're certainly going to leave out something that's important to somebody. And some general or some politician or somebody's going to be mad at you, no matter what you do. It, right. It's a no-win. And you can't do enough of them. You just have a roll, rolling, scrolling graphic of all the things. So the, it becomes a quandary. What are you going to do? How are you going to tell this story? Well, I'm going to tell the story the way I tell stories best. And that's with music and pictures. Because that music with lyric can tell you the big, broad picture story of the Air Force. The pictures will take you from the past all the way into the present and maybe a hint of the future. So that's what we'll do. I will take about half the money of your budget and put it into the original music, and we'll have a, like a, a, a gospel chorus, we'll have a lead singer, uh, maybe two lead singers, and we'll also have, uh, I call it a rock orchestra. We can do anything from the full classical feel to the, uh, to a real moving power ballad, kind of a Whitney Houston type song, but it will be a song and it will cover through and there are times when it just opens up and it's just instrumental, but it's all the story, it's supporting the story told in pictures. That's how we'll do it if you hire me. And it takes a lot of guts to do that, right? Because a lot of times if you're doing a pitch, you want to be all things to all people. And here you're giving a very, very specific directive. This is what I suggest, kind of like an, an expert, a consultant who comes in and says, here's what you need. But usually they, you have to pay them first, <laughs> right? Well, I also figured that the other guys would all pitch something where we'll have the little interviews. I mean, that's the standard kind of thing they do. I didn't know if these people did the kind of thing I do. I didn't know anything about the, the others, except that they were, you know, pretty big and then they're Beltway people. But they tend to not do the kind of things that we do. So, so it's a differentiator. Yeah, and, and I, I wanted to point that out. And, and the reasons to not do it are very valid because we, we're struggling, how the hell you tell this story? And it's the thing that has worked for me for years because almost everything I've done has been original music and such. So we, uh, you know, I left and they said, thank you very much, we'll let you know. And as I left, I had this sinking feeling that I just wasted, a, you know, two days coming back here to DC and all that, but what the heck. So I'm getting on the airplane at Dulles and they have the little train trams that go out to the plane. It's a, like a bus and it lifts up and you go into the airplane and I'm on that bus and my phone rings and it's Admiral Grillo or General Grillo. And I said, uh, yes, sir. What's up? And he said, are you still in town? And I said, well, physically, yes, but I'm about to get on the airplane. I'm on the bus at uh, Dulles, so I can't get off. And he says, oh, darn, we wanted to talk to you tomorrow. I said, was well, it a follow-up or, you know, second round? And he says, no, no, you got the job. Well, I said, well, well great, great. Well, listen, I, I'd love to meet with you tomorrow, but I'm, I'm headed back. But if I got the job, I'll just send you the paperwork and we'll get started. I also told him we'd go uh, to Hill Air Force Base. I already knew where the Air Force archives were. And then, you know, how we're going to get all this footage. So anyway, uh, he said, okay. The next time I saw him uh, was in D.C. to uh, 
to show to play the music for him because I worked with my uh, music guy. My main guy is a guy named Stan Beard, who's just incredible. He's written a lot, a lot of great things for us, for our original music. And I had Stan come back and Stan had gone in, into studio and used some, recorded some background singers. He created a track, mostly synthesized. It wasn't with real orchestra or anything. And Stan personally was gonna sing, he's a great singer, was gonna sing the lead for the demo uh, and we had already decided on using Wayne Nelson, Little River Band, to sing the lead for the, the main piece. But Stan was going to play along on a small keyboard in the conference room with a speaker with the track that he had already done. And it was close enough that it, it's a demo. So they walked in and they sat down, and Stan sat down, sat up, and gave him about this much intro and said, Play the song, Stan. And he does. And they're sitting there and they go, Oh my God. And the general actually got a little tear. It was cool. And they, and I said, what do you think? He said, oh, my God, my God, you know, can you do it again? So, sure, Stan did it again. Same reactions. They said, wow. I, I said, so it's approved, right? Because, well, yeah, but would you, would you mind doing it one more time again? And uh, he says, no, we want to get the staff in to hear it. Wow. So they did, and they all had the same reaction. So I said, thank you very much. We flew home. That was the only other time that we met until the event itself. We sent the finished piece to them. We never sent anything in the interim. Sent the finished piece to them, uh, and they found one flaw. And General called me and said, we got a problem with this scene. And it's a scene of a rocket going off. And in the background, uh, it's a satellite rocket. And in the background is a Boeing that, uh, building that said Boeing on it. Little tiny logo in the back of the shot. It's about two second, three second shot. So I said, okay, well, hang on a minute. And I put him on hold and went back to the edit suite where my guy was there. I said, hey, when you pull up the, that it's all digital. And we had, you know, massive computers. So pulled it up and we got to the scene. I put the general back on. I said, okay, I'm looking at the scene. Okay, I see it. And I said, hey, Tim, can you blur that out? He said, oh, of course, I knew we could. And about 15 seconds later, I said, okay, General, it's all fixed. Anything else? He says, no, that was the only thing we had. We love it. I said, okay, it's fixed, and uh, I'll send the master off to your PR company so they can put it into the playback files, and uh, off we went. Now, I showed up because uh, they invited me to come back for the ceremony. I wanted to see it. it was, I mean, this is going to be cool. And the night before, they had a black tie thing for all the donors and all the people who had contributed all these millions of dollars to this. And there, I guess there was just a ton of generals and admirals there uh, from our armed services as well as our, all our allies and all these heads of these big uh, aerospace companies. And they did a preview dinner and a thank you for the donations. And they ran the video. And the security was so tight that they wouldn't even let me in because they hadn't time to vet me. <laughs> so it was one of those DC events. <laughs> right, of course. And, uh, but the general called me at the hotel afterwards. He says, Fred, I think we got a hit. I've never seen so much brass with so many tears. <laughs> and uh, the postscript is uh, one of the ways I like to um, look at the, pro the product we create is the ROI, return on investment. And if it has shelf life, because these things are made for one event, one time, 
you know, quarter million, half a million, exactly. million dollars gone. Maybe. In this case, uh, it opened the show, it set the tone, it did everything they wanted, but it was powerful enough that the, uh, I was told that the Secretary of the Air Force and the, uh, the general who was the Air Force general at, at, on the uh, Joint Chiefs uh, used it uh, for their speeches for the next year or so uh, to open up or close a speech because it was that powerful. And I was told, and I think it's still being used for uh, new, new uh, uh, entrance to the Air Force Academy as part of their That's welcome introduction. All these years later, about when was this made? Originally? This was uh, 2003, somewhere around there. Wow, it's incredible. So, uh, you know, if it's got five year legs, it's good. If it's got 10 <laughs> right. legs, it's great. If it's got anything more than that, uh, you, you've created a classic. And so that was really, really cool. And we weren't paid that much for it. We, we didn't lose money on it. We didn't make a lot of money on it. But it was a passion project because I really care about our armed forces. And um, again, it was one of those opportunities that you don't get very often. And I was, we, we were, my whole team was very honored to have been allowed to do that. Yeah, it's incredible. And I, I know you're very patriotic. Um, and I know that means a lot to you, as you, as you just mentioned. Um, I, before I let you go, I just want to um, ask you um, how we can get a hold of uh, your book or other information about you, Fred. The easiest way is uh, my website, fredashman.com. Uh, they can also email me at fred at fredashman.com. And uh, that's, that's how I, I sell the book. And if you want to email me, I'll make sure that you get a, a signed, personally signed copy of it. And uh, yeah, uh, I think a lot of people will have some fun with the book. The book is told in true stories, uh, all of them with some real poignant points about business, about the production business, but they all translate into the regular business. And I've been told it's a kind of a fun read. It's, it's, it's a big book, a lot of pictures too, color pictures from our events. And it's about uh, 350 pages, 340 pages, something like that. Well, every once in a while we get uh, lucky and someone with all your years of experience and, and, and your, your, how well you're known and respected in your field writes a book and we have the ability to be able to just go out and get it. So I think it's, it's really tremendous. And thanks so much for joining me today, uh, Fred. I'm Fred Ashman, legendary writer, director, producer, uh, has been kind of spent um, a lot of time with us today. And I, I want to thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure.